I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Parallax Views listeners, as most of you know, each and every edition of Parallax Views is made possible by patreon.com slash parallaxviews supporters. On that page, again, patreon.com slash parallaxviews, you can support me financially and help keep this show going with a monthly donation of $1, $5, $10, $15, or $100. And at the $10 tier and above, you get a producer's credit. So, producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The War Nerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Justin, Nick W, Chance, and the Mere Project. That's M-E-E-R, Mere Project. They are doing some very interesting work in regards to global warming and combating the consequences of it. If you'd like to join those listeners in getting your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, please consider supporting me at the... $10 tier or above on my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And if you were in one of those tiers and didn't hear your name mentioned, please contact me on Patreon or by email at parallaxviewspod at protonmail.com and I will rectify that immediately. Sometimes I do not get the proper updates from Patreon about my new financial supporters and donors. So anyone that's having that issue, just drop me a line and we will rectify the problem as quickly as possible. I've been here for about a month and a half now and... This is definitely the most difficult situation that I've ever seen. Um, in the time that I've been here, um, children have been shot and killed. Um, on the 30th of January, the Israeli military bulldozed the two largest water wells, um, destroying over over half of Rafa's water supply. Um, Every few days, if not every day, houses are, are demolished here. Um, people are economically devastated because of the closure of the borders into Egypt and the extreme control of the Gazan economy by Israel. Um, I saw it. I came to um, 
to look at the aftermath of a place where 25 greenhouses had been demolished on the other side of Rafa, um, destroying the livelihoods of about 300 people. Uh, and that had taken place while they rounded up about 150 men, uh, held them under a sniper tower, and, and shot around them to contain the men, the farmers in the area. Um, so I feel like what I'm witnessing here is a very systematic um, destruction of people's ability to survive. Um, and that is incredibly horrifying. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we're going to be speaking with independent scholar Wahid Azal, who has written a great deal about the occult imperialist underpinnings of the Russian philosopher Alexander Dugin, who in the West has often been accused of being Putin's brain. His book, The Foundations of Geopolitics, influenced the Russian military, and his name and legend has grown since then. In 2014, he lost his position at Moscow State University after calling for genocide against Ukrainians. What is the influence of Alexander Dugin in not only Russia, but the West? Hopefully, this conversation will answer some of those questions, as well as helping us to understand the ideology of this Rasputin-like figure. I mean, he, he does have a sort of Rasputin look to him that, I think, has helped with getting his image out there and his wards into the mainstream media. We'll be talking about his relationship to traditionalism, potential ties to the satanic neo-Nazi group known as the Order of Nine Angles, his interest in chaos magic, the Russian Orthodox Church, and much, much more. So, without further ado, my conversation with Wahid Azal on the occult imperialist ideology of Alexander Dugin. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I think we're going to have a very interesting conversation with, Wahid Azal, uh, who has been researching and looking into uh, this figure known as Alexander Dugin. Uh, he's been called Putin's brain, uh, and he's also kind of a, a Rasputin-type figure within uh, Russian politics. Uh, how are you doing, Wahid? And maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you became aware of this strange figure of Alexander Dugan. Okay, uh, Bismillah. Um, I became aware of Dugan back in the zeros initially in the context of just very surface readings about uh, post-Soviet Russia. And at the time, uh, he was, you know, basically the, the leading figure of the, of the far right scene in Russia. But as we started to get uh, close to the period of Occupy Wall Street, um, Dugan and his acolytes began to change their tune uh, and even conceal a lot of their far-right influences. Um, he kind of presented himself as kind of an alternative left voice, but one with a kind of a spiritual edge, uh, which is kind of uh, my own point of departure on a lot of questions and a lot of issues. 
Um, so when I moved to Berlin with my wife in 2012, um, we started seeking these people out because the people he had on, on Russia Today uh, were speaking to issues that I thought at the time, especially during the height of uh, the Arab Spring and Occupy Wall Street were quite pertinent. But um, as we got closer to Euromaidan, and then once Euromaidan happened, and then the invasion and annexation of Crimea, uh, both RT, the Russian establishment itself, and the Duganists all online began to change their tune radically, uh, 180 degrees. Um, then we started to witness, especially during that time, a, a kind of a flooding of very dubious right-wing uh, identitarian and white nationalist groups into the anti-imperialist scene throughout social media, whether on Facebook, Twitter, elsewhere, and uh, you know the changing of the narrative that they had been presenting only you know, a few months before. Um, and uh, as I've talked about in many other places, um, we had a falling, my wife and I had a falling out with these people because of this, and also because especially they were supporting uh, the anti-refugee, anti-immigration narratives that were coming out of various right-wing circles throughout Europe, um, during the height of the refugee crisis in 2014 and 15. Um, and um, as a consequence of this falling out, I was asked by a few people to kind of pen a summary article about Dugan because a lot of people at the time couldn't really put their head around this guy or what he was about. So I just basically immersed myself uh, with the writings, um, his writings available at the time, and basically confirmed uh, most of my suspicions that we were observing uh, online about these people that we're basically dealing with with uh, the new right, um, uh, but a new right with a Russian, uh, a pro-Russian imperial, I would even say white, um, white Russian, anti-Bolshevik uh, edge to them. Uh, and this was just not on uh, for us. So we basically broke away and took a, a few other people with, with us um, out of those circles online. Um, I had also befriended one of Dugan's leading um, acolytes and, and spokespersons in Germany, a gentleman by the name of Manuel Oxenreiter, who has since passed away as of last year uh, of a heart attack. Um, and we invited him and his girlfriend to our um, flat in Berlin several times. Um, but their support of Pegida, which was this anti-immigration, anti-refugee uh, and extremely racist movement in Germany at the time, uh, pushed us away because we, you know, my wife and I, my late wife and I were both are. Uh, both lefties. Um, she came from a, a solid uh, Marxist-Leninist family. Her mother had been a lifelong uh, member of the German KPD in Munich. And my late wife, Roya, had grown up basically uh, in, in the youth communist movement uh, in Munich of the KPD. And, and um, she used to tell me stories about how she would um, pass pamphlets in the downtown Munich area, anti-racism pamphlets, right across the street from the Burger Braukeller. This is where Hitler's 1923 coup, uh, the push of 1923 happened. So we were on the complete opposite pole of this and we were not amenable to what has subsequently become the phenomena of the tankies, these neo-Stalinists, um, uh, because you know, to their credit, not all, but many uh, German Marxists of the previous period um, or who grew up in communist uh, households um, really understand that, that Stalinism uh, was a betrayal uh, of Marxism in every conceivable way. And my late wife was one of those, as was her late mother. Um, so we were not about to be pulled into this sort of uh, red-brown alliance uh, that Dugan was cobbling together, and which Manuel Oxenreiter himself had actually spoken about um, quite openly in, at her home at one point in 2014. Could you talk a little bit about what he had to say to both of you? Or, Well, when... 
we initially invited him. Um, I was not aware of the fact that he was the editor in chief of a magazine known as Zuerst, uh, which means I think it means the first or the, the awakening or something uh, to that effect in German. And this is a right wing, a very uh, identitarian white nationalist magazine uh, targeting particularly the crowd in the Bundeswehr, the German army. Um, and my wife went online and, and started accessing some editions of this, and she was just absolutely just, you know, uh, flabbergasted by the line and editorial line of this magazine. So we, you know, asked him about it, you know, what is this all about? And he basically said, this is all a attempt uh, to pull uh, left-wing people into the right camp and the right, uh, right wing and uh, white nationalists and identitarians into a sort of a anti-imperialist uh, position so that we could collectively confront uh, neo-imperialism and American uh, imperialism, both on the continent and abroad in its uh, proxy wars, et cetera. But, um, subsequent events proved this narrative to be a ruse um, very swiftly at that once that Pegida movement uh, got off the ground is because they were basically pushing on a lot of the left-wing crowd in their orbit, uh, and especially Muslims who were left-wing in their orbit to uh, push this anti-refugee, anti-immigration line that was essentially um, us, uh, you know, uh, trying to galvanize us to denounce our own people in a way as being terrorists. This was the line coming out of RT during most of that period. Um, and also uh, a line that was coming out of, uh, you know, some segments of the mainstream German media itself that was demonizing these refugees and, and immigrants as being terrorists, et cetera. Um, so we took our distance from these people. And then I was asked to basically summarize all the issues into a single article. And that was the article that uh, the Counterpunch published in early 2016. It, it, it's interesting. I, I want you to maybe explain uh, who Alexander Dugan is and uh, what his sort of belief system is. I think he's called it the fourth political theory. He's yeah. a very he's a very strange figure to me because and I, I want to point this out first, because what's always struck me is he gets involved with uh, Edward Limonov and and the, yeah. the National Bolshevik Party. But then he also gets involved in like occult uh, chaos magic. And now he's Mr. Orthodox Christian, although there's also rumors that I've heard from anti-fascists that's that he's involved with um, the Order of Nine Angles, which is a satanic yes. group, satanic yeah. neo-Nazis. And they have yeah. that group has, for people that don't know, been trying to infiltrate Orthodox churches in yeah. places like Serbia. So what's interesting to me is, you know, I don't know how he can be that much of an actual Christian. Uh, to me, he seems like, uh, you know. Maybe a wolf in sheep's clothing for Christians. Oh, I mean, I'm secular myself, but go on. One hundred percent, he's a wolf in sheep's clothing. I mean, I have had extensive conversation with Orthodox Christians themselves, Russians and Greek and otherwise. Um, and once they actually read his works, they come to basically the same conclusion that he is essentially a occult uh, left-hand path Satanist, um, just basically masquerading himself as an Orthodox Christian. Um, now. The, the problem is that there have been certain academics in the West, um, Mark Sedgwick, primarily amongst them, who's the author of uh, Against the Modern World, where he wrote a book about the traditionalist or neo-traditionalist movement, where he tries to um, basically brush over a lot of these very problematic elements of Alexander Dugan and present him as a traditionalist in the camp of Rene Guénon and Evola and uh, Shuan, all those guys. Yeah. Who are the traditionalists? What is the traditionalist school? Like just a brief summary for people that may not be familiar. 
the traditionalist school is a a kind of a um a i would say uh, today i would say i mean once upon a time I, I would be reading these people quite avidly um but now i look at them more of a, as a kind of a european uh, nativist reaction to um modernity um rather than a left-wing react you know let it, rather than a left-wing approach to this is they're a very nativist right-wing one uh using what they call traditional metaphysics and particularly um their kind of uh, uh you know the mold that they use to explain the world starts with with the hindu metaphysics of the manvantara which is the great cycles of time and the leading figure of the school the the figure that founded them is was a gentleman a french gentleman by the name of rene gaino um who was quite active during the 1920s um he subsequently he was a catholic but uh, had a falling out he converted to Islam at one point. I yes, think. he then converted to Islam and moved to Cairo uh, and spent the rest of his life there uh, until his death in about 1952. Um, other figures of the school, a contemporary of Gaynon's was uh, Ananda Kentish Kumarashwami, a, a Sri Lankan American uh, scholar of the arts uh, who lived in Boston for most of his life. Uh, then there is the Swiss uh, figure, Fritzschelf Schuon, very problematic figure who was the founder of a sort of a syncretic Sufi uh, kind of a tantric cult known as the Maryamiya, uh, which today is kind of uh, headed by this Iranian figure by the name of Sayyid Hussein Nas. Um, their ideas, although interesting, and although they, they, they propound the traditional metaphysics of say that the Hindu uh, Vedanta and, uh, you know, Islamic Sufism and, you know, other, uh, you know, high metaphysics, uh, which they call traditional metaphysics. Um, is interesting in itself, and you know these things are, are kind of neutral in that sense. But the how they apply their hermeneutics and interpretation of metaphysics has very problematic angles. And I've actually begun uh, kind of a piecemeal, slow critique of Gaynon himself and his concept of time uh, for, on the basis of traditional ontology. You know, to critique um, uh, this very uh, negative attitude that they have towards time and their kind of nostalgia for the past and wanting to reestablish the past. Uh, and whatnot. And, and Dugin, although um, he is, I would classify him primarily, primarily philosophically a Heideggerian, um, has kind of shoehorned himself amongst this crowd. Yeah, and I, I think the Heideggerians have, you know, Martin Heidegger and traditionalists don't necessarily gel that well. Not at all. In fact, Evelo was quite critical of, of, of Heidegger in several places. Uh, in one particular place in Ride the Tiger, he was very critical of Martin Heidegger. Um, and the reasons that he gives are, are, are good. Uh, Martin Heidegger's uh, ontology is basically a temporalization of uh, the traditional Neoplatonic metaphysics of, of several leading German mystics, like Meister Eckhart and Jan von Rosbrook, et cetera. And he temporalizes, rather than, uh, he, he essentially immanentizes the eschaton uh, and denudes traditional Platonic ontology of its kind of verticality as, as such. So this is where traditionalists and Heideggerians kind of diverge on the question of, of Dasein or Dasein uh, as it's traditionally propounded in uh, you know, European Neoplatonic metaphysics. But nevertheless, Dugan has appropriated this while shoehorning himself as a traditionalist. Uh, and he is propounding an extremely reactionary, uh, you know, neo-Czarist or white Russian uh, discourse, uh, which has nothing, which is, you know, just, a, the opposite pole of uh, what Lenin and the Bolsheviks of that era were propounding. Um, and it is very neo-imperial uh, and it is, you know, it, it basically 
uh, crosses over the border to the kind of, uh, of nonsense that was being propounded by National Socialists uh, and some of their fellow travelers in the 1930s. But he's very careful um, to masquerade and, and conceal uh, a lot of this stuff through um, what I would call uh, philosophical poetry, which is basically what his book, The Fourth Political Theory, amounts to. Now, what the fourth political theory means, um, as, as Dugan presents it, he says that uh, liberalism, Nazism, and fascism were the three uh, major political ideologies of modernity, and um, that uh, all three of them are failures, albeit that liberalism triumphed over fascism and communism both. And so he is now propounding a kind of a, um, both a synthesis and a transcendence, not just of two of these, uh, namely uh, national socialism uh, or fascism and, and, and communism, which is where the national Bolshevik and the Nazbol ideology of Limonov comes in, um, in a kind of a rupture with, with, with liberalism. Now, a person such as myself has a deep critique of liberalism and the Enlightenment project as it stands. Um, and I would probably direct people to uh, the recent work of, of uh, Joseph Mossad, his book, uh, Islamic Liberalism, which offers a very cogent and historically argued uh, critique of liberalism, where in the Enlightenment project and, and uh, uh, liberal democracy in its seed is a very much a racist colonial project uh, with extremely Islamophobic and even anti-Semitic assumptions uh, in many of so its areas. Settler colonialism. Settler colonialism has been, you know, part of it. Uh, in fact, liberalism and colonialism have been part and parcel of a, of a project. I mean, America uh, or the European, uh, you know, uh, continental powers like France and Britain, et cetera, were all, uh, or were and are liberal democracies, but that yet they perpetrated colonialism under that rubric. So I don't have a problem with critiques of liberalism from that angle or the Enlightenment project and the Enlightenment assumptions as such. But what Dugan is doing with it, rather than coming from the left, he's coming from the far right, um, in that he is proposing a both a, a sort of a return and a sort of a apotheosis of this return to a older uh, authoritarian uh, kind of context. And this is where his notion of uh, multipolarism, or as he classifies it, ethnopluralism comes in, which tacitly, um, uh, basically latches on back to the notion of race without coming out and saying it. Ethnopluralism um, believes in uh, an essentialism of cultures and civilizations, which is a very problematic uh, proposition from the point of view of history and anthropology. Um, the cultures are essences, you know, kind of like platonic forms uh, that are not, that are kind of contained islands within themselves. Um, but, I mean, he doesn't wish, he doesn't overtly um, propound a concept of race that then, you know, automatically kind of follows from this idea. Uh, but this is where it leads to. So ethnopluralism with, with, with Dugan effectively means you know, white people in white countries and black and dark people in their own countries, uh, a world where strict borders are enforced. Uh, so we're back into a, you know, a, a pre-World War II kind of model of the world. Um, and this is something that people should understand that we have experienced multipolarism in the, in the model that Dugan is proposing in the pre-World War II era. Real quick, if I could, are there, I, I'm curious because I've, I've been thinking about this, I've talked to academics who I, I don't, Phil or Duganist that have used the term uh, multipolarity before. Is there different models 
of multipolarity. And also I want to note to me, when Dugan says multipolarity, it's almost like he's saying, well, the U.S. gets to do whatever it wants in its own backyard. It can oppress yeah. all these people. And you know what? Now it's Russia's turn to be able to do that in its that's, own sphere of influence. That's exactly right, because where uh, Dugan's notion of multipolarism leads, um, and especially in his concept of Eurasianism and Eurasia, is that Russia becomes basically the global empire. Um, and that all these other smaller countries and whatnot become kind of subservient satraps or, or vassals. To Moscow, as it were. So, whereas, you know, yes, the unipolar model uh, of Pax Americana is an extremely problematic model that we've had to live with since the end of the Cold War. Nevertheless, what Alexander Dugan is proposing is exactly the same thing, but in a far more authoritarian uh, kind of uh, reality than what we have even now. So, I, I want to come back to the traditionalism thing just for a second here. Uh, so, yeah. I think in your article at Counterpunch, uh, you say that he he could even be described as an anti-traditionalist or yes. like a counter-traditionalist. What would that yes. mean? These are terms that Gaynon employs in his book, The Reign of Quantity and the Son of the Times. And um, the way he defines this is that, you know, that, that certain forces, figures or whatnot um, can appear in a traditionalist garb, presenting them, themselves as orthodox this, that, or the other thing. But in reality, they are working against... Um, the principles of that tradition in, in many ways. And Dugan, in my opinion, um, epitomizes this because even though he presents himself as an Orthodox Christian, um, the politics and the geopolitics that he's propounding is actually against, um, you know, I would say the very Orthodox Christianity that he propounds. Um, and, you know, basically the church or Orthodox Christianity is basically marshaled in Dugan's vision as sort of a state ideology. Yeah, I mean, the way I've thought of it, and, and I don't know if you would agree with this, but I, I almost feel like he wants to use the church to push his own sort of secular ideology. In a, in a way, he's almost trying to push these these Christians away from the spiritual and into the secular. And that comes from his Heideggerianism. See, Heidegger and, and traditional Neoplatonic metaphysics that the Orthodox Church itself subscribes to are incompatible, primarily, as uh, John Caputo proved, in his book, The Mystical Element in Heidegger's Thought, um, is that Heidegger engaged in an extremely dishonest intellectual project, right? By immanentizing the question of being that, that these traditional Neoplatonic philosophers had verticalized. Um, and so- uh, what, not, not, what, to, not to interrupt you, but- it, Sure. If I have a lay audience that may be getting lost when you say immanentizing, sure. and what, like, what do you mean in, in lay terms? And I, I don't, I'm not trying to dumb it down too much, but- Sure. Whereas, for example, in traditionist um, Neoplatonic metaphysics, the question of Armageddon and the end times is a sort of a, um, for lack of a better way of putting it, it's sort of like a Jungian archetype that each individual gets to experience within themselves, a kind of a cathartic spiritual experience. Um, with Dugan and the Heideggerians in general, they take this concept and they try to apply it uh, to the realm of politics. So they're politicizing the, the apolitical, the apolitical in, sen in the sense being the eternal, uh, you know, occurring on another realm, both individual and collective in one sense, um, but ultimately a personal experience of each individual of, of the end, uh, in the sense of the end of the, the, their material experience, their veiling from, from, from God. Um, but what Dugan does with this concept is that he tries to um, superimpose, uh, you know, the symbols of this, but denuding them of their greater meaning and platonic correspondences into a political project. 
So to bring about the end of the world. I mean, Dugan is obsessed with, with, with apocalypse and Armageddon, but not in its symbolic form, but in a literal form. He wants the the death of you know the the sort of um, of modernity itself. Yeah, which I mean, look, even Marxists like myself, even though I'm an eco Marxist, you know, we don't have a problem with this concept of the end of modernism, right? Uh, which would entail bourgeois capitalism. That's not a problem from where we're concerned. The vision that Dugan is propounding is an extremely troubling one because it is a reactionary authoritarian paradigm. Uh, that wants to reestablish, you know, monarchies, uh, uh, caste systems, etc., uh, and, and what have you, but on an international level. So I, I want to get into the occult aspects of Dugan, but I, I also I've talked to a few people about Dugan, and there's one quote he has that I've never been able to make sense of, and maybe you can make sense of it because you sound up on a lot of the the spiritual aspects and and what he may mean with his sort of philosophical poetry uh he has this line where he says uh, we will cure you with poison I, i'm hmm. wondering what do you think he means by that there's a lot of things he means by that first of all this is a concept that comes from alchemy right in alchemy there's a concept that states that the poison is the gift right so the antimony during the process of the great work of, of creating the philosopher's stone uh in its final stage then produces the stone itself right uh the, the poison or the the sulfur and salt when they come together. And so what Dugan is doing, he's taking this concept directly from alchemy. And what this means is, for example, with lefties and liberals, they want to fascize them. And with identitarians and, you know, people of that ilk, you know, the white nationalists, etc., they want to infuse them with, with um, left-wing concept. And this is where the whole chaos uh, magic and the whole chaos uh, comes into play in Dugan's philosophy, which is the name of the final uh, part of his fourth the fourth political theory, the metaphysics of chaos. Um, and this is what he's trying to do. But all of this, you know, has a very specific end. Um, and that is to disrupt and destroy uh, the, the current structures in the world in order to uh, rebuild a Russian empire that then encompasses the planet as the dominant force uh, for the foreseeable future. Also, you know, I remember watching an interview of, of Duke, and I think it was actually with uh, the BBC, where he keeps saying to the interviewer, he says, well, you believe in, in, in postmodernism, you know, and, mm. and we believe in postmodernism too. We Russians have our own special truth. And that is what postmodernity says. W what is he sort of doing when he invokes uh, the ideas of postmodernism? He's weaponizing postmodernism against itself, um, but this isn't a, a new thing. I mean, this was also attempted in Germany uh, during the 1920s. You know, the, the conservative revolutionaries like, uh, you know, Junger and except were basically arguing along the same lines. Uh, discourses that fit into the greater National Socialist form uh, that led up to the appointment of Hitler as, as chancellor in 1933. So he's basically doing exactly the same thing. But when he says something like that, he's basically arguing this cultural essentialism and civilizational essentialism that I pointed out, um, that, you know, the Russian culture is a self-contained island um, and that it is true in itself, uh, and but also incompatible uh, with the, the principles and the mores uh, of, of the West and the world in general. But he's not just, you know, when he says something like that, and if when you continue to read Dugan, and particularly if you get access to his foundations of geopolitics, when he says something like that, he's not just only pointing at the West and the liberal uh, democracies of the West and the Atlantic world. He's also 
uh, pointing out to the Muslim world and the, the, the Sino-Chinese world um, as also being incompatible cultures with that of, of Russia itself. Okay, okay, that, that's interesting because I know, I think a lot of people get this impression because Dugan has been on like Chinese state TV. He's been on a yes, yes. CGTN. So I think people have this idea that Putin is like, oh yes, we, we are all, you know, part of the, the uh, Eurasian system, you know, the, the, the Chinese and, and Russians, we are together. You're saying that's not exactly what he's about. No, that's not what, what he's about. I mean, he, he lays out, this is why there has never been an official translation of the fourth uh, of the foundations of geopolitics. There's several unofficial ones floating on, online, uh, one of which I actually found last night, um, where he, you know, in order to have a viable uh, neo-Tsarist Russian empire, China has to be cut to size. Uh, so the power of the, the economic and political power of China itself has to be uh, basically put into check by a Russian empire, neo-Eurasian or Eurasianist Russian empire. Uh, so Dugin and the Russian establishment to some degree looks at China and the PRC as, as, our, as sort of frenemies. Uh, now, yes, he's also appeared on Chinese television and um, he's basically said what these people want to hear, but I don't think the Chinese themselves are, are that um, dumb not to realize that uh, you know someone like Dugan is potentially a Trojan horse even amongst them. Not so basically the he views them as like a means to an end for now. And then yes. when the time comes, he'll stab him in the back. Yes, yes, yeah. So then uh, with this question of occultism in Dugan, uh, maybe we should explain what chaos magic is. And also, I, I think there's been people that have tried to push back on what you've said about Dugan saying, oh, Dugan, when he has the, the image of the chaos star, that's not actually a chaos star. That's a, that's a Christian Orthodox symbol. And it's I don't- not. Oh, I want you to get into that. So explain. This was a this was an argument I had online with one of Dugan's American acolytes. Uh, uh, I, I forget this guy, gentleman's name, Mark Sloboda. He was trying to tell me that this is uh, you, you know this is actually a traditional Orthodox symbol. Well, I've I've you know I know my symbolism and and it is not. Uh, it is the 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 star of chaos, uh, which is you know original originated by. Uh, British science fiction writers uh, during their late 1960s, 1970s. Michael Moorcock. Michael Moorcock, exactly, uh, who was actually a Crowleyan, you know, a, a follower of, uh, of the system of Alex Crowley and, and Thelema. Uh, so chaos magic actually comes from out of that milieu. Um, now, what chaos magic is, I mean, I, for, you know, for one podcast, I don't think we could fill it, but basically uh, chaos magic is a very mentalist, uh, no rules, no holes barred system of, of magic and sorcery. Uh, uh, very prevalent online. Uh, it actually has been uh, the, the system of choice for a lot of the outrightists. They've all gravitated towards this. Um, but I also tend to look at these things from the point of view of ideology and, and the kind of uh, political impact that these sorts of views have on, on, on the greater constellation of political events. Um, and that, that's basically what it is, as sort of a no holds barred, no rules, no ethics, no morality uh, kind of system of approach to greater questions. So then bringing this all together, I think we should go back to uh, the, the foundations of uh, geopolitics. And how relevant is that book in Russia? Because I've heard multiple different things and it's, it's hard to know uh, I, I mean, it's hard for me to know at times how relevant Dugan has been in the past and how relevant Dugan has been now, um, only because a few years ago when he was, 
I, I think fired from his Moscow State University job. I thought, okay, this guy is like on the outs now. And it seemed like he was starting to, you know, do little TV shows and, and stuff. And it seemed like he was just trying to grift. Uh, but now I'm wondering, you know, maybe he has more influence on Putin than I realized. And I go back and forth on that. So I guess what is his relevance within the Russian political scene? Well, you know, the Russian political scene up until I would say um, the invasion of Ukraine was not a monolith. Um, you know, there has been a process of consolidation that has led up to this point. Um, but up to that point, Dugin was the voice of that particular segment of the Russian establishment that was close to Putin, um, that was basically pushing the kind of agenda of, of the, the, you know, of, of confrontation with the West, uh, the annexation of Ukraine, uh, you know, uh, basically pushing NATO out of Eastern Europe, which in itself, you know, again, is not a bad thing. Um, I, I actually, I was going to say, too, I think the reason Dugan got fired was because students were really upset. I mean, it's telling what he said uh, yeah, in he 2014. Was, he said, kill, kill, kill. He basically yeah, he said, was, kill the Ukrainians. Yeah, yeah, he was advocating for the genocide of Ukrainians, you know. Um, and so uh, he was fired from that job in 2014. This is around the same time we had our public falling out with these people as well. And um, but, you know, subsequently, he um, became the leading uh, spokesperson for the Zagreb TV uh, that was founded by his benefactor, Konstantin Malofif, one of the leading right wing or orthodox uh, oligarchs uh, in the Russian Federation today. Um, and this is the period that then leads up to the election of Donald Trump, uh, where Zagreb TV and Dugan starts to get very close to people like figures like Alex Jones um, and then the alt right start, stars start to rise in the media, uh, you know, uh, in the United States and, and Europe and elsewhere. Um, That's and really interesting, not, not yeah. to interrupt you, but I've always sure. wondered about oligarch money and Dugan because I've noticed, you know, I have friends in places like Romania and I've said to them, you know, I've noticed in, in some of these Eastern European countries, there's these weird conspiracy theories popping up like, oh, yeah. NATO is, is pushing the LGBT on us. And it's all this weird, like Dugan style conspiracy theories. You're finding them in Serbia and Romania and all these other places. Yeah. I'm like, where is this coming from? And I've had people uh, from those parts of the world say to me, well, it's, it's oligarch money. Uh, so yes. there, there is a connection between oligarch money and Dugan. Big time. Well, I mean, his benefactor is Konstantin Melov. I and mean, this guy's, a, you know, he has... All kinds of media uh, holdings. You know, Zagreb TV. I mentioned one. Uh, I think he's also uh, a share, a big shareholder in the uh, the big, the main company that has RT uh, as its as it's one of its media networks. And th th this this kind of stuff would also be spreading in other parts of Eastern Europe or finding its yes. way into places like Romania and Serbia, yes. like I said. Yeah, 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 and also into Germany and most of most of Europe. I mean, the the. Um, much of the phenomena of, of the last decade that we have witnessed on the continental side is this rise of, of, of the far right. Uh, that was up until I would say about 2013 uh, marginalized. Uh, then from that point onward, it's, it's, you know, its own fortunes start to rise, whether in Germany, France, etc. cetera. Uh, I mean, let's not forget that the last French election, uh, the National Front, although it didn't win the election, it came pretty close uh, in, in the votes in the, in the first, uh, uh, stage of the presidential elections. And, uh, you know, it could happen again in the upcoming French elections uh, and whatnot. But you saw that in Hungary with Viktor Orban and his con consolidation of power there, uh, the rise of the of Polish nationalists in, in Poland and their taking of the Polish parliament, uh, and on and on these examples go.
So the Russians have been very busy in the last decade. Uh, and it's this oligarch money that has funded uh, a lot of this stuff uh, throughout Europe itself. Is there any connection between uh, Dugan's thinking and maybe, I, I feel like there's a lot of um, anti-Muslim sentiment that gets pushed by the right and certain elements claiming to be left-wing. You know, you see yeah. uh, left-wingers saying, oh, the, the jihadist head choppers in, in yeah. Syria. And it, it's it's kind of like, I'm like, wow, you guys don't even view these Muslims as like human. No. And it, it, no. Does that tie into all of this, this anti-Islam sentiment? Okay. Yeah, it, it, it ties into it. And it's also, I would say it comes from geopolitical thinking. You know, geopolitics is a very dehumanizing uh, perspective on international politics and, and McKinder, relations. right? Yeah, McKinder. Yeah, he he originally spawned this school, uh, which Dugan has revived. Uh, you know, hence the title of his uh, uh, first work, "Foundations of Geopolitics," uh, which uh, divides the world into the land powers and the sea powers, uh, and this eternal Manichaean struggle between the two until one of them comes out on top. Which, as far as Dugan is concerned, so far it has been the sea powers of the of the Anglo-Saxons. Uh, but the you know the goal of a Eurasia is to basically reverse engineer all of that uh, to, to create a world where uh, the land power in the form of Eurasia, i.e. Russia, uh, becomes a dominant world power. So with regards to the occultism angle, I, I had two more questions on that. The first was, uh, when we look at something like chaos magic, is, is this something that's um, inherently bad or is it neutral? I, I, I'm wondering because, uh, you know, when I, when I was younger, I dabbled in um, I think it was called sigil magic, which uh, yeah, yeah. was interesting to me. And I, I never thought it was like necessarily a, an evil thing, but I, I wanted you to uh, get into where do you see chaos magic as, as being? Is it a, a bad thing, good thing, neutral? Well, I mean, the, the question of good and bad is a theological uh, discussion, which I think, you know, we would lose most of your listeners if we got into it. But uh, sigil, first of all, sigil magic in and of itself, although it has been appropriated by chaos magicians in itself is not... Uh, intrinsic to chaos magic. Where chaos magic, in my opinion, becomes pro problematic is in its amoral uh, and ethical approach to the question of ontology as such. Would you say that's also, is, is that a problem more generally with what's known as the left-hand path? Well, the left-hand path insofar as it has shown up in the West, because the original left-hand path in, in, that comes from India is basically the path of the woman. It's, it means worship of the goddess. You know, whether in the form of Kali or, or the Mahashakti, etc. But once it came to the West, uh, beginning in the 19th century, uh, through various channels, uh, Sir Arthur Woodruff, uh, British occultist, main uh, transmitter of all of this, it, it very quickly um, uh, reassembles itself in the form of a kind of an inverse or reverse Christianity. Right. The, the Christianity is seen as, uh, I mean, maybe I'm messing this up a bit because I'm not an expert on occultism, but I think left-hand pathers view, Western left-hand pathers see Christianity as almost being like, oh, that that's like collectivism and like morality. We're, we're all about the individual and there is no morality. You just do what you want. Yeah. 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 In a, in a nutshell. Yeah. So then um, I guess for people that are, that are hearing this and saying, well, what do I care about all this occultism? And Dugan just sounds like a, a nutter to me. You know, I, I may have listeners that think that they may be very secular. Why do you think they should pay attention uh, to this sort of uh, esotericism within Dugan and what he's pushing? Well, um, nutters uh, are a threat to, to everybody, to collectively. We have had nutters uh, that have perpetrated wars that have left 50 million people dead at the, at, at the end of it. 
Um, we have had nutters who have hijacked planes and, and rammed them into buildings um, and on and on, you know, these examples of nutters go. Um, a nutter with state power and a dark occultist message it should, should basically wake everybody up because that means that there are political agendas afoot that will affect them eventually, whether through war uh, or otherwise. And, you know, something that I've mentioned in, in, in several podcasts now with others um, is that there is a reception for these ideas within the West. Now, what's very, I find very interesting that in Russia, and a lot of Russians and a lot of Russian comrades have said this, and even Ukrainians, that within Russia and Ukraine, um, Dugin is himself seen as a very marginal figure, right? Most people- well, That's what I was sort of saying earlier. Yeah. I, I, I was under yeah. the impression that Dugin was uh, marginal, but it sounds like you're saying he may have more power than we think. He has more power than we think, but there is an insistence in the West to project this guy to a Western audience and to collect Western acolytes. I mean, the vast majority of Dugan's acolytes, as far as I'm concerned, are Americans, North Americans in general. And, you know, for a long time, I, I, I looked at this as, as very quaint. You know, in Russia himself, he's a marginal figure, but yet, you know, you have all these you know, North American acolytes uh, online, et cetera, the whole alt-right phenomenon is, is basically- I think they his, even had a whole, there was a whole group of people, I think they called themselves new resistance that were basically like into yeah. that fourth political theory ideology. Yeah. 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 Well, new resistance is actually the American front, which is a violent you know, Nazi organization that the Southern Poverty Law Center has written about extensively. Um, yeah. And their acolytes or their their chief um, figure, uh, this gentleman by the name of James Parazzo is a, is a Duganist. I believe he's since had a fallen out with some of these people. Um, but, you know, that's another another discussion. Um, this stuff is, is extremely um, dangerous because of where it is entrenching itself uh, in Western institutions and the help that it is getting uh, through figures like Steve Bannon and the, the Mercer family of, of, you know, who are America's own oligarchs uh, and the Mercer family's own connections with Russian oligarchs and their business, you know, entanglements and whatnot in Russia. These are things that a lot of people don't talk about, but they're facts that, you know, anybody can find out about themselves. So whereas Dugan is a nobody, at least in the eyes of many Russians themselves, other than the Eurasianist movement, um, in the West, he's, he's been constantly promoted, uh, whether by Russian, you know, the Russian alt media ecology online and elsewhere, or by the mainstream media. I mean, he's appearing on BBC, he's appearing uh, I mean, he's debated American people networks. like, uh, I was going to say, he's debated people like Francis Fukuyama. Francis you know, I, Fukuyama, I think, yeah. I think in a way, the sort of, I mean, the media in the U.S. is about attracting ratings and getting clicks. Yes. And the yeah. way that Dugan presents himself, he presents himself, all, he's like the perfect comic book supervillain. And people yeah. kind of are drawn to that, which yes. makes him a perfect figure for the media yes. to latch on latch onto. He's sensational. 100%. See, I, I have a theory about Russia and just basically about world politics in, in general that, that kind of you know dismisses this geopolitical fallacy. Um, under neoliberalism, the neoliberal world, we live in a situation where the state has withered away and power is vested in money and corporatocracy. And, and that means that even Russia itself and Putinist Russia itself, in a sense, is a Western corporate satellite. The state and governments are irrelevant here. It is the flow of money, capital and business entanglements of plutocrats and oligarchs that really matters. If we want to talk about something, we should probably talk about uh, the geopolitics of corporatocracy, which is a term I've, I've coined. Um, and um, as my friend Gyoda Praparata uh, convincingly argued in his book, Conjuring Hitler, uh, where he proves- I'm familiar that, with that book, but if, yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah. 
where the Anglo-American establishment was essentially responsible for both the rise and fall of Hitler. So um, basically, the city of London and Wall Street brought Hitler and the Nazis to power, and then you know pushed the, the, the Third Reich into the Third World War, uh, the Second World War, sorry, and then um, brought it down at the tail end of it uh, in order to war profiteer. In a sense, under neoliberalism, we're we're dealing with a very similar paradigm. And so I look at, for example, the war in Ukraine at the moment as a kind of a war between oligarchs, Russian and Ukrainian oligarchs, that in the end uh, is going to benefit the war profit profiteers of the West or, or Russia jointly. Um, and so this is what we need to look at. So, you know, Dugan, I don't look at this conflict between um, America or the West and, and Russia as that as being a serious. I look at it in the same context like Yoda Proparata contextualize the overall Second World War. And there's a lot of evidence to that in. And, and like I mentioned, uh, these business entangles that big American plutocrats like the Mercer family have with uh, Russian oligarchs, et cetera, is, is one uh, proverbial tale of the rooster proving this. Um, so we have to kind of dig beneath world events. Now, of course, this sort of narrative leads into a conspiratorial uh, vision of, of the world. But, you know, as a Marxist, uh, I would say that, uh, you know, when we have the registers of the conspiracy correct, uh, we are actually entering the terrain of facts. Um, and that is that, that this is how capitalism behaves. And under its neoliberal uh, you know, kind of permutation, it, it is continually behaving in this, in this fashion. So a Dugan, if he didn't exist, would have to be invented by the West, in a sense. Wow. Um, <laughs> it, so I, I had mentioned to, uh, you said you consider Dugan a, a Satanist, and I want to touch upon this just briefly here. Like I said, I've heard a lot of rumors about Dugan being involved with the Order of Nine Angles. Is, is yes. there anything to that and, and to uh, Dugan as a Satanist? Well, I mean, the Order of the Nine Angles is an extremely uh, secretive order. But um, this this position was first uh, put out there by my friend uh, Branko Malic of the Kali Tribune. He kind of alerted people. Uh, after reading the Order of the Nine Angles literature and the scholarship that was coming out about at the time in 2016, alerted a lot of us that, it, you know, the Crowleyan angle may be there, uh, but the way that Dugan is behaving is, is identical to the kind of uh, programs and the program that the Order of the Nine Angles is proposing. And so it is very possible that Dugan uh, could be a member of this. Uh, for example, the Order of the Nine Angles believes in the malleability of all forms. And so what it gets its acolytes to do is to basically um, take on a persona for as long as necessary and become that very thing, right? I was going to say, j just uh, from what I've seen of the Order of Nine Angles, obviously David Maya, I think even yes. though he claims he didn't found it, he found it under the pseudonym Anton Long. And yeah. I think you can see what you're talking about just in the figure of Maya alone, because he goes yeah. from neo-Nazi Satanist to uh, I'm a jihadist now, and now he's claiming that he's, you know, a hippie peacenik, and he's just sort of constantly yes. changing personas. Yes, yes. And this is part of the praxis uh, of the Order of the Nine Angels, and they've done this through multiple, uh, into multiple things. And this is what Dugan himself is doing, and I would argue that his Orthodox Christianity is very much part and parcel of this. What's the end game of doing that, though? Well, the Order of the Nine Angles believes that that this is, um, because we're living in the Kali Yuga, again, a, a Hindu concept, um, that this is the path to liberation, that this is part of the left-hand praxis, you know, to take all of these identities and then break them and transcend them. Uh, so this is their kind of inverse enlightenment, if you would. 
the path, or the path leading to it. So if you don't want to talk about this, we don't have to, but I heard you sure. mention it in other interviews. Um, and, and I can understand if this is like too sensitive a topic, but I know you had mentioned your wife had passed away and yes. that there may be a, a connection between that and, yes. and Duganus. Could you explain that? If you don't sure. want to, it's fine. No, that's, that's fine. I've, I've, I've talked about it elsewhere publicly. Um, my wife and I were very active um, in various circles in, in Berlin, uh, particularly with several different anti-racism groups. Uh, we effectively, as of the end of 2015, became uh, the Antifa on our street. You know, So we were to go to people whenever there were incidents, and there was increasing uh, number of incidents that were happening on our streets. Uh, you know, uh, Hijabi Muslim women were being accosted at, at train stops, et cetera, uh, tram stops. And um, we basically, the two of us put a giant target on our own backs. And because we were active, not just on the level of the street, but also on the internet against Dugan and his uh, acolytes specifically, and within Germany itself, after the election in 2017, when the AFD, the alternative for Deutschland, won 90 seats in the German parliament, um, we became very, um, you know, we, we were just sitting ducks. And so in on March 11th, 12th of 2019, uh, without any uh, forewarning, my uh, wife passed away in her sleep. Uh, the coroner um, and the toxicologists are in disagreement about what was the cause of death. Um, the way that the district attorney of Berlin was behaving at the time, which was very strange, uh, led me to make a complaint against the district attorney of uh, Berlin with the German federal police. Uh, and they launched an investigation, which is still ongoing, um, because they also believe, as, as I do, um, that uh, something possibly would have happened to my, my wife, because we were being targeted. She was a perfectly healthy 51-year-old German woman. Uh, she had how, how are really, you being targeted before this happened, just out of curiosity? We were getting death threats almost on a daily basis since we made our public break with Dugan. Once that article was published with Counterpunch, one of Dugan's leading voices on the internet, this gen gentleman by the name of Andrew Karipko, even penned a, um, a public threat directed at myself um, in veiled terms, which you know became part of the evidence that I took uh, with me to, to the German federal police. So all the, you know, it, it, there is quite a body of substantial circumstantial evidence that this would have been done, uh, that we were being targeted, you know, very specifically. So it wasn't just on the level of being doxxed and we were both of us were being doxxed, uh, you know, accounts were being hacked. Uh, that sort of thing was going on in a continual way since 2015, leading up to the night when she passed away. So closing out here, and, and I'm glad you were able to speak about that. I know uh, it's probably sensitive, but uh, thank you. I appreciate it. Sure. In, in closing here, it sounds like, you know, we have a multi-front uh, sort of war. I mean, for leftists in that, yeah. you know, we have to sort of oppose. I mean, I would say leftists have to oppose uh, both the, the sort of neoliberal orthodoxy without falling yeah. down the sort of uh, Duganist Eurasianist rabbit hole. Yeah. So what do you see the solution as maybe being or a way to fight back against both fronts? And I assume what you talked about uh, earlier, you mentioned eco-Marxism uh, yeah. may play a role in that. Yes, it will. I mean, I, I also have to thank you. I mean, I've been listening to some of your former podcasts, the one that you did on Donbass, um, that kind of really got into who the tankies are, was very good. I mean, this was uh, probably one of very few podcasts that that basically succinctly uh, defines all the issues. 
So what you're doing and, and, and you know, what people like yourself are doing is, is probably at the start, it's, I would say that this is the way to push back against both these forces. So, you know, we should, as Marxists, we should critique both sides. So we need to basically start coming out as a third force um, against both the Eurasianists and the Atlanticists, the neoliberal world order and its potential Eurasianist permutation simultaneously. Um, so if we can walk, we can uh, walk and chew bubble gum at the same time. We don't have absolutely. to be. We don't have to be uh, NATO cheerleaders or Dugan no. cheerleaders. No, I mean NATO. We have to be very clear, and I've said this before. NATO is a criminal organization. Period. Um, what it has perpetrated, and especially what it did in in North Africa, um, you know, during the Arab Spring in, in Libya specifically, um, was a crime against humanity. I mean, they basically engaged in giving air cover to these very dubious Islamist forces to then overthrow the government of Gaddafi that system and have turned Libya into a failed state. Um, one of the people that you've had in, in previous podcasts was actually instrumental in this on the media level, Juan Cole. I, I know he's changed his view sub subsequently, but he was very much uh, part of the cheerleading team about the NATO attack on, on, on Libya. Uh, as for me, that is unforgivable because what it did was, you know, has basically turned Libya into what it's become. Um, so this is the kind of things that we have to do. We have to be very deliberate, very cogent in our analysis, you know, um, realize that imperialism does not merely come in an Anglo-American form, that imperialism can come in also a Slavic form as it's attempting right now under Putin and, and the Russian Federation. Um, and that we need to also critique, get back into critiques of capitalism itself and particularly in its neoliberal form. So folks have to get really on top of their theory um, I mean, I can't tell you the number of Marxists that I have, you know, run into, whether in Europe, um, here in Australia, or amongst American Marxists that haven't even, you know, cracked open the uh, you know, Das Kapital on its first volume. You know, you need people need to actually go back and read these works. Granted, we don't take these things as scripture, uh, but we need to be up on our theory, and because we need to be up on our on our analysis. And I just want you to maybe explain, if you could, you mentioned eco-Marxism or eco-socialism. What do we mean by that? And also, you know, I always hear that, oh, Marx never considered ecology, but I think you would say, Actually, he no, did. if you look, he did. Yeah. So talk yeah. about that a little bit. Well, some of the Cato, um, who is one of the leading uh, scholars at the moment on Marx's unfinished notebooks, has proven beyond any shadow of a doubt. Uh, that in his final decade, that Marx was very much tuned into the question of ecology. Um, and that, you know, we cannot even begin to understand Marxian political economy as such, and particularly Das Kapital, without taking into consideration Marx's notion of metabolism between uh, humanity and nature. This is only now, after 100 something odd years, beginning to come into public attention. And Cato has translated a good portion of these notebooks, particularly on the question of ecology. Uh, so, you know, Marxists need to take this aboard. We need to be very mindful of the fact that Marx himself was not a productivist. That means um, that the Soviet model that looked upon nature as this kind of tabula rasa where the proletariat could expo exploit at will was not exactly what Marx was talking about. That we need to appreciate the metabolism between nature and the human world. Uh, so ecology then becomes a very central element um, of any, uh, you know, 21st century Marxism as such. Well, I want to thank you, uh, Wahid Azal, for coming on Parallax Views. Uh, how can my listeners keep up with your work? And, and what would you say uh, to anyone listening to this program who is, is maybe despairing right now because of the uh, state of the world? Like, how can we keep the faith or keep up hope? 
never give hope. Um, you know, you have to get into the warrior spirit, as it were, and realize that, you know, I, I'll put it now in Zoroastrian terms, since we're talking about dual, dualism, so fight of light versus darkness. Um, Zoroastrian eschatology believes that at the end of time, that there will be knights um, fighting for Mother Earth, that the, that, that the final battle between light and darkness will occur on this planet, um, and that it will be the fight for the angel, which is the Earth. So look at it from this point of view. We need to fight for our mother, which is the Earth. Uh, and for our fellow comrades who are her children. Um, so do not give up hope. Um, you know, just get focused, uh, educate yourselves, uh, and uh, don't swallow <laughs> any uh, snake oil that comes your way. And, and how can my listeners keep up with uh, what you're doing? I have an Academia, uh, Academia EDU page. Uh, I have a blog. I'll send you links to these after get off the podcast and people can, can connect with me through them at any time. Okay, thank you again. We'll heat us all. Thank you. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Wahid Azal. As always, if you can, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Monthly donations of one, five, 10, 15, or $100, any amount will help, and it is your financial support that keeps this show going. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit it. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm... I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff is a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.